I am a human being and I killed human beings. I kept the, uh, the mummified head and skull of one of the victims. That huge break. Police say they now have the killer in custody. The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. In South Africa, 57 people are murdered every day. These are the stories of the killers and the people who hunt them. I think society deserves to be protected from me and from others like me. On today's show, we profile and meet the team. We reveal the cold facts behind serial crime in South Africa and hear the story of the quarry killer from the man who hunted him. So, my name is Paul Llewellyn. I'm a journalist and I am taking my fascination with serial crime to the experts to reveal the truth behind the killers and the criminals who stalk our streets. Joining me to reveal these incredible stories every week, Jared Labaskachny is the former cop who led the investigative psychology section of the South African Police Service from 2001 until 2016. In his time there, he worked on over 300 serial murder and rape cases, and he is the profiler. Hi, Paul. Very excited to get our first episode on the road. Yep, looking forward to it. You are a forensic psychologist. You're a profiler. What Your core skill, what is forensic psychology? Yeah, so basically forensic psychology is actually quite a broad field. So it can be anything from people advising in a divorce case for custody issues. And in fact, that's what a lot of psychologists are doing when it comes to forensic work, to advising um, if someone's been in a, in, a, in a vehicle accident and now there is a civil claim and you might get a psychologist to do a neurological assessment, for example. Um, and then a small section of forensic psychology is probably what most people think forensic psychology is, which is actually helping solve cases and catch criminals. Um, in reality, even in South Africa, very, very few psychologists are actually really advising the police and assisting the police. And it also sp spans the other side where people are working in prisons with offenders who've been convicted and trying to help rehabilitate those people so that they can hopefully be integrated back into society. So that's kind of the, the overall spectrum that you get from the civil family law stuff right up into the investigative side of, of the work. But in reality, very few profilers are actually psychologists. Oh, really? Yeah. How did you become a profiler? How did that journey happen for you? Yeah, well, so originally I just expected I'm going to be a normal psychologist and one day open up a private practice and, you know, listen to bored housewives and then charge a fortune, hopefully. Um, but I think like most people, I had an interest in sort of the world of crime, but I never, I never saw it as an as occupational career path, so specifically in South Africa. You know, I knew there was one person doing that at the time, Dr. Mickey Pistorius, and I thought, you know, the chances of ever getting a job in the police are probably almost non-existent. But because I had to do a research dissertation as part of my master's, I thought, let me do it on a topic that's firstly interesting, because if you're going to do a lot of research, you may as well make it interesting. So a buddy who was studying with me during my master's was actually in the police and was being paid by them to do his psychology qualification. And he said to me one day, we've got to choose a topic. So let's choose an interesting one. So I said, oh, that sounds like a good idea. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, you know what? He knows Mickey Pistorius, and why don't we do it on serial killers? I thought, well, that's great, but that's interesting, it's fascinating. And we actually then both ended up interviewing serial murderers in prison. But even then, it wasn't, you know, that this is going to be my career path. Maybe karma knew better than I did where I was going to end up. So then I qualified, went to work at a psychiatric hospital. Then I decided I wanted to do my doctorate. I thought, well, the easiest and lazy way to do that is continue with what my master's topic was, which was go back and interview more serial murderers or continue interviewing them. And I did that. And then one day the position became available when Mickey Pistorius had resigned, and I think in about 2000 or 99. 
And I said, you know, if that post ever comes available, I'll apply, maybe do it for two years and then move on. And it did come open. I did apply and I got it. And I ended up staying for 14 and a half years. And that's where I learned really about profiling. So profiling isn't something you learn at a university in an academic course, in a, in a psychology training. It's not the standard curriculum. Um, it's really something you learn once you're in a law enforcement environment. We all know the the the, the show Mindhunter, mm. which is kind of telling the story of the birth of, of, of forensic psychology and profiling in the 70s into mm. the 80s. Tell us about how did when did it start in South Africa? You mentioned Mickey Pistorius. Yep. She is a name that's synonymous with mm. um, kind of serial crime in South Africa. What was the what was the birth of of this capability at the within the police service? Yeah. So so she had joined the police as a just a normal psychologist, and then this was around the time that the um, Station Strangler and the most Satoli cases were prominent uh, in the media, and she had done as part of her studies. I think she'd done a small project or assignment on serial killers or serial murderers. And when these cases started to happening, some, I think either she mentioned, listen, I've done a little bit about it. And they said, well, great, you're now a local resident expert. And they pulled her into those investigations. And that kind of was a start of psychology being applied to investigations in South Africa. And that kind of led to the, eventually the, her being full-time in that capacity, taking on a second person, Elmer Meyberg, who's still there until today, and eventually a unit being created. And around about, I think it was 95, 96, the unit was sort of created. And for many years, it was just the two of them until I, I joined later on. Um, and that was kind of the start of it. And then they had, you know, Robert Restler, who was a very well-known FBI profiler who passed away a couple of years ago, come out to assist with the Moses Atole case. Okay. And then he came back later and gave some more training. And that was when the sort of the training for our cops started. And then later on, Mickey took over that training and would present, up until today, a yearly course for detectives on about, about serial murderers and how to deal with them. And she, of course, interacted with different people and learned more about profiling. And that was really the start of profiling in South Africa. Now, interesting thing is most people assume law enforcement agencies throughout the world have profilers. The reality is no, very few have. In Europe, there's probably maybe two or three police agencies that have full-time employed profiling capacities. Um, even in the United Kingdom, it's not in the police. It's actually in the home, home department. The profilers are not actually part of the police. Okay. Uh, in America, most states don't have it. You know, Florida, I think um, South Carolina has. One or two other states have. Los uh, California had, and then he, re he retired. So mainly it's the, it's the FBI. Canada has a few. So the fact that SAPS already had this capacity full-time in its service from about the mid-1990s, actually, we're, we're way ahead of a lot of overseas colleagues who don't even have this. So that's much credit to her for getting that started and SAPS for sort of investing in it over the years. So unpack that a little. What has the structure of our forensic investigative unit been? What what does it consist of? Yeah. So obviously Mickey was a psychologist originally. Then Elmery came over. She had a psychology background, although she wasn't a qualified psychologist. Then later on, I think uh, Lynn Evans, who was a detective, joined. Uh, I then joined after Mickey left. So then it was me, Lynn, and Elmery. And then slowly we added more investigators because a lot of the work we do is really helping a detective who's never been exposed to a serial murder case or a Muti murder case or any other, I know, other weird kind of murder. And they're kind of faced with how, how on earth do I go about this? Mm. And we would actually bring the investigative guidance. And with that, sometimes the pure profile, you know, who we're looking for, what kind of a person, their characteristics, their features. But a lot of it is really helping this detective do a good investigation in a type of case they've never dealt with before, probably. Um, so we actually, so the majority of the unit has always consisted of detectives. At the most, at any given time, we probably had, I think, three or four psychologists, including me, at the, at the, at the, at the most at any given time. And that was probably for maybe a year or so. Uh, after I resigned, Hayden left and Bronwyn left last year, March, we had none. 
and then eventually last year they they reappoint they appointed a psychologist. So it's kind of fluctuated. Uh, as I said, there was, uh, up until about a year ago, there was always at least one. Mm-hmm. There was a gap for a period, and they appointed a new one. But the majority core people are actually detectives that we now have, not just based at the national office in Pretoria, but also provincially we have a few detectives who are kind of our, our eyes and ears on the ground. And then often the head office unit will come and assist those members with the detective who needs assistance in their case. From our discussions, how I understand it is that our unit being kind of centralized in Pretoria has helped really, you talk about the kind of efficiency of this section, mm. and that, that really helps. In the American system, it's a federal system, yeah. and so three people are murdered in County X and three people are murdered in County Y. Typically, they would be investigated by two separate investigative mm. teams, and that's not necessarily the most yeah. efficient way to handle these kinds of cases. Yeah. So if you look like, for example, the United States, you've got federal law enforcement like the FBI, then you get to state law enforcement, and then you get the local guys. There's literally 17,000 independent law enforcement agencies in the United States if you had to look at all of them across the 50 states. So, and literally, for example, it's like almost saying Hillbrow Police Station is, is its own police force. They have their own budget, their own hiring, their own uniforms, their own policies, their own way of doing things. That's literally what it's like. And that's not good for a serial case where you have people who's operating across different boundaries. Now, SAPS, in South Africa, we only have one national law enforcement agency. And that's great when it comes to serials. So our ability to have one national DNA database has actually made it far easier for us to pick up serial rape and serial and murder cases, because most of our serial murder cases involve rapes from a DNA perspective. Okay. And so there are a lot of things structured in South Africa that actually make our ability to deal with serials a lot easier. So there's, there's this kind of urban legend that you hear around South Africa that mm. we have some uh, an incredible amount of serial crime yeah. to deal with. Does that have to do with the fact that we've actually had an efficient service that is able to yeah. identify and, and in other countries they maybe don't understand the, yeah. the gravity of their problem? Yeah, so for example, if Uganda says we don't have serial murderers, is it because <laughs> they don't have DNA systems, they don't have a national database of cases, mm-hmm. etc., or do they don't have serial murderers? Yeah. I can get every single country as serial murderers. The question is, are you in a position to pick them up and yeah. identify them as a series? And that's always going to be the problem, yeah. um, specifically as criminals get smarter and smarter and maybe leave less evidence because we're educating them on television. So yes, you know, is our ability to have better stats mean we have more or just that we're more aware of what we have? Yeah. So yes, they talk about us being in the top three or five yeah. countries, you know, USA, Russia, you know, England, South Africa, whatever the, yeah. the, the fourth country is. Um, but it's, it's difficult to compare. We're not necessarily comparing apples with apples because, yeah. you know, the America, again, did they do, do they have a national list or is it what they can gather from people send, informing them about a case? Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we, it's difficult to say we do have a lot, uh, but whether we statistically, if we had the real stats, would we be number 30 as opposed to in the top sure. 10 or five? Difficult to say. You will, in later episodes, we'll talk more about, you know, you no longer being a part of the, the SAPS and that, you know, you have your reasons for leaving what, and what have you. What is the capability like now with, mm. with your intelligence having left in 2016 yeah. and some of your co- and a, a lot of your colleagues have left where do we stand right now as far mm-hmm. as our ability to, to to tackle these kinds of crimes yeah i think we're on a cusp we've got quite a few more people as part of the unit whether they're based in the province or the national office but we're looking at how many of them have the experience in this particular job so they might have come from being a sexual offense detective into our unit now working on these cases or a violent crime detective or a psychologist for example so i mean you can advertise 100 posts tomorrow it doesn't mean you have a unit that has 100 people's worth of knowledge in the field because they yeah. still have to learn 
So we have sort of the core long-standing members like Elmery Myberg that I mentioned, who for like 20 years was a captain and overlooked for promotions for, you know, for various reasons we can go into later, who fortunately this year was eventually made a lieutenant colonel okay. and who was on the verge of leaving because she thought, well, what's my future? You know, I'm 20 years in this rank. I'm always overlooked promotions. Hmm. You know, is the organization. Now, this was in the press last year that yeah. she, she was leaving. Yeah. That's, that's kind of how I came to yeah. track you down. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, fortunately she's been promoted and I think she'll now stay for definitely three more years. And that is massive. If you lose her institutional knowledge, you're talking yeah. literally the history of the unit in there that's gone. Sure. There's other one or two other members who've been there like since 2005, Yonder Lange, who's also a lieutenant colonel. So I think if we lost those two people, it would be a massive institutional loss that ooh, would be very difficult to recover from, I think. Okay. So I think if they can keep those, the people that They've got as the core element i think we'll be fine you know and I've, I've always said i'm always happy to help if they need whatever it's for training or guidance or mentoring people um and that offer would always stand to them for sure okay so i think we understand the mm. the broad context how well do you sleep at night 15 years <laughs> of of murder corpses death um how do you as a psychologist maintain your psychology mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, look, I think you're, you're a fool if you think that working in this kind of, even actually any policeman really, or policewoman, to think that this kind of stuff does not have any impact. Mm. You don't necessarily think it is at the time, but, and I kind of felt, my, my viewpoint was, I, you know, I never really would have difficulties about what I saw, mm. um, for example, at a crime scene, et cetera, or an autopsy, but I might have more frustrations and difficulties with the organizational administrative internal politics that, that every organization has sure. that would stress me out okay but what i realized you know after i left in in 2016 i think it was the first of march i i, I was out is that for the first six months was actually my de-stressing period without me realizing it and then i kind of realized wow i was not really in a great space on a long-term level just because of that build-up of pressure but I think it's a situation where you get so used to living with the X level of stress that that becomes your baseline Yeah. that you don't notice it unless something additional on top of it is happening on that yeah. day. You know, somebody's irritated you or something went wrong. Okay. Then you feel stress. Like if I couldn't find something I was looking for, I'd get start swearing and get yeah. very irritated, which I don't do now, you know, because okay. my life was a bit more well, relaxed. So, so yeah, I think in that sense, definitely psychologically, it's been better for me since I've left, I do feel more relaxed. I've started to exercise on a daily basis, which I just never had time in SAPS. Mm -hmm. And we were also working literally, you know, I'd work till two or three in the morning um, and then wake up at five or six and go to work. Sure. And just because I had so much to try and get done. You know, my colleagues would drive, we'd have a WhatsApp group for the unit and, and I'd be at three or four in the morning. I think, oh, I've got to remind, I've got to mention this something to the guys. And at three o'clock in the morning, I put a post on the 10 messages on the WhatsApp group. Remember guys, today we have to do this. You know, not expecting to respond, but yeah. you're just trying to get as much possible, but it just never, never ended. Yeah. So that's why you kind of just permanently live with this level of frustration and anxiety and never getting yeah. stuff done. The task of a profiler is to really, to, to, to imagine the mind mm of a serial offender, somebody who is motivated by uh, sexually or whatever to, mm -hmm. to commit a crime. Do you acquire a bit of that coldness by kind of putting yourself in the shoes by, mm -hmm. by creating that profile? I think you definitely become to a degree immune to th a lot of things that people would go, Oh my God, how could you, how could you do that or be there or watch that or see that? Or how can you joke, you know, when you've just come from an autopsy or even crack a joke at an autopsy? Mm -hmm. 
And I think that's part of your survival mechanism, that you do have to have that clinical distance, otherwise you won't last. You will burn out, and then you're no help to anybody. So, you know, you can go from an autopsy, like, hey, guys, let's go for lunch. I'm hungry, you know. Or even at the upstairs of the mortuary, have something to eat when you can still smell the bodies, you know, yeah. from wafting upstairs. Which from is down. a pretty unusual reality to, yeah. to to come to terms with. Is there that one case that keeps you up at night? Um, there's ones that are memorable, but memorable maybe for various reasons. One that bothers me is a guy that who, who managed to flee the country to Brazil after killing brutally killing his girlfriend, and that's a you know definitely a case I always like to talk about, and we can go into more detail later. Yeah. Um, and he was arrested at the scene. Um, eventually given bail despite our protesting bail initially and they appealed it in the high court and he got bail despite us saying the guy's a flight risk and he did flee and then he fled to brazil we managed to trace him to brazil got him arrested there and he was eventually incorrectly released by a judge while we were awaiting extradition and he's now disappeared i mean that's one that really grates me because i really want to see that guy in front of court and for the families or for the family's sake but other ones stand out like the quarry case we'll discuss later for different reasons because i was ahead of the task team yeah other one might be because it's a child's victim that wasn't solved um so one they they kind of stand out for various reasons well we will be getting into the quarry killer case a little bit later on you can tell your friends to catch us on brandlive.co.za or search profiler africa on youtube and please subscribe to our page we're also available on itunes and you can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Simply search for Profiler Africa. In South Africa, 57 people are murdered every day. On Profiler, we bring you the stories of the serial criminals and the people who hunt them. I'm Paul Llewellyn. I'm a journalist with a fascination for serial criminals. My partner in crime is Jared Loveskakny, former head of SAP's investigative psychology section and the man responsible for catching some of SA's most prolific killers. So we've got lots to talk about in the weeks to come. Let's talk about the murder statistics. I want to get your insights. In 2017-18, murder was up 7%. We had 20,336 murder cases, and that is counted per charge. So that's not per docket, it just so that's per charge. Um, and rape, 40,035 rapes, also up. I mean, I've, I've just been feeling in the country recently just a, nas- a sense that, that the crime problem is growing again. You know, you had in the 90s, you kind of felt there were problems. It got better. Mm-hmm. Units like yours became more and more efficient. How accurate are these numbers? How worrying are these numbers? Yeah, look, the, the, the statistics, even if we take the police stats at face value, which we'll get into a moment while we can't, okay. they, they are shocking. Um, I mean, there are not a lot of countries that have a higher murder rate per day or per capita than than, than we have in South Africa. Um, you know, the, they, they used to talk about one in nine victims who were raped go and report it to the police. The, the current stats are like one in 20. So whatever stat wow. you see there, you can times by 20 is the reality of how many people were potentially raped. And the, the less faith people have in the police's ability to investigate crimes and how they're going to be treated by the justice system, the less likely a woman is going to, or a man is going to report a sexual crime to the police. So even if our, our rape stats or sexual crime stats are dropping, it's not to say that we actually are having less incidences because we're just having less people reporting it. And that's why people often look at the murder stat as well. You know, you can't not report a murder. That's maybe a better general predictor of, of issues. And that's also not the case per se. How, how would you multiply the murder numbers? 
Difficult. So people used to say, well, it's a dead body. Of course, it's a murder. It's, you know, you, what else can you call it if mm. someone's dead with a you know, knife stuck in their chest <laughs> yeah. or, or whatever? Well, there's definitely, and this has been documented by the Institute for Security Studies in Pretoria, which does fantastic research, that when, when, let's say, when the police come across a dead body, say it's out in the open felt, for example, um, if there's no obvious signs that the person was murdered, but they're dead and they're not quite sure why, they'll, they'll open up what we call an inquest docket. Okay. Now, you should not be opening up an inquest docket if you think it is a murder. Then you should open up a murder docket sure. from the start. And the inquest dockets don't appear on crime stats. Okay. That's not something. So what you really need okay. to do is to see not just the murder figures, but they should actually start to publish what's the inquest figures. Because okay. if you see the inquest figures going up and the murder rate dropping over a period of two or three years, just means you know that they're registering dockets <laughs> yeah, as inquests, absolutely. which don't get counted as a murder, yeah. which don't get counted on the crime stats as a way of covering up the number of murders they're actually having. So this, is, still a, this is a political decision. Exactly. Because I, that That's was how my stats next question. and how we measure people in the stats affects our crime stats. Yeah. So an uh, inquest docket would, can still be investigated and they can still arrest someone and still go to trial, but it's never recorded on the CAS system or the crime system as a murder. And that's how people fiddle the system because of how we measure policemen yeah. and, and women in their daily um, duties. You've mentioned to me that when you got started at, at, at SAPS in the 90s, that serial rape cases, you would identify not too many of them on an annual yeah, basis yeah, yeah. compared to today. Mm. Talk a little bit about yeah. that. Okay, so I, I started in October 2001. Mm. And if you look at the, the, the units records um, of when we would open up a case that we're working on um, or when a case was referred to us, we would probably, in a year, if we dealt with maybe 12 rape series in a year, that was kind of the average. I mean, by the time we left, I mean, you're talking about hundreds of series. And I'm not talking about hundreds of individual rapes. And to be called a serial, you have to have at least two. So if, you, if I say 100 series, you're talking at least 200 victims. Mm. Um, and that was primarily because of the change in DNA processing, which okay. took place around about 2006, seven. Let me explain what happened. In the old days, and I say, say pre-2006, if a victim was raped, she would go to the police. The police would take that lady to the hospital where a medical forensic medical examination or what we call a J88 form would be completed. And they do the what we call a rape kit, which is the various swabs looking for semen and hairs, etc. In the old days, depending on which province you were in, they would then say, well, you're going to keep that sexual, that rape kit, let's just call it that, at the station. You're not going to send it to forensics until you arrest someone. Then you take his DNA sample and you send both to the forensic laboratory and say, please process the sample from the victim and the suspect and see if they match. Other provinces were told, send it to forensics. And what forensics will do is what they call evidence recovery. They'll open up that kit and do tests to see if there is a biological sample like semen on the kit. And then they would stop and they would send a letter to the detective saying, we've got something here. We're not going to process it until you send us a suspect sample because why would you want to process this, the money involved, the time, the backlog, etc., if you don't have a suspect yet? Mm. So they were only thinking of DNA as a courtroom tool to get someone convicted. Sure. They weren't thinking of DNA as an, as, a, as an intelligence system. Until we had a serial, the quarry actually was one of the instigating reasons why they decided to change that. Okay. So now what happens is all DNA that gets sent in gets processed, even if we don't have a suspect, and gets put on the system. And all of a sudden, we're now matching case A and B and C, okay. Whereas before, you might have, I might have arrested you for the rape of one lady. You might have raped 20, who mm. all did go to the cops, and all did have rape kits done by the doctor, but they're not on the system. 
So now what happens is you get linked to this lady because maybe she knows who you are. Mm. You get arrested. Your Mac DNA is taken and matches Lady A. But we don't, we've never processed Lady B, C, D, E, F, and G. So we're never going to link you to those cases mm. because they, either those crime kits were sitting at the police station still or they weren't processed and loaded onto the database. So can you imagine how ridiculous that is? We yeah. weren't realizing how many serials we had and we were maybe catching you and linking you to one case yeah. when you've done 20. I find it. I find it very interesting as well. I mean, where every time when we go and get our IDs, then mm-hmm. as citizens, I mean, everyone with a with a South African ID book gets their thumbprint on the ID. But there is not a database that can access all of that yeah. information. Is that correct? Yeah. So traditionally, SAPs did not have access to the Home Affairs database. I mean, think about it. If you apply for a firearm, full set of fingerprints. You yes. apply for a clearance certificate, full set of fingerprints. Lots of different mm-hmm. things that you apply for, you, your fingerprints are taken. Um, but SAPS was never allowed to access those. And it, and that's always been a, a human rights sort of type of issue is why this, the police should not have access. So so literally what would happen is the police would only have fingerprints besides your crime scene prints, which we call latent prints, which we don't necessarily know who they belong to. We would only have fingerprints from people that we've arrested. All we could do was compare our crime scene prints to the people we've arrested before. That's not exactly a fantastic pool of no, people. exactly. Whereas if we had access to the whole, like I said, the Home Affairs database, well, you can imagine yeah. from, as I said, maybe even, I don't know if, if people who are seeking asylum have to give their fingerprints. You know, so yeah. the, the, the pool of potential people you can compare your crime scene prints to just mm. quadruples. Or even These are very interesting kind of philosophical conversations yeah. to have. Maybe we can talk about it in the future as well, because, I mean, these days, yes, it's, there's a human rights issues around accessing your fingerprints, but all of us are being listened to by Siri all day, every day. So <laughs> we have to change our perspective on these things. Um, let's take, let's now focus in on serial murder, serial murderers. Mm-hmm. How many serial murders are, are, do we assume are active at any time in South Africa right now? So if we had to look at the, the unit's stats over the kind of couple of year period, um, we would probably be realizing about or identifying 10 new series every year. Okay. So we say probably at least 10 are active at any given time. Of course, there's going to be ones that we never know about for various different types of reasons, but probably 10 new ones a year. Hmm. Most, I would happily to say that the majority of our serials do get caught. So we haven't, we've had very few, we've never really had one that's continued ongoing killing for a number of years and we haven't been able to catch him. And I'd probably say 75 to 80% are are caught. So we have actually quite a good record in terms of SAPs over the years of catching these, these individuals. Who stands out for you? When it comes to, to to serial killers that you've dealt with over the years or that you've interacted mm. with, you know, because I worked over in my time in SAPS with probably about 110 serials, murder okay. series, and then the, the rest were rape series, which were far more. Um, so the ones, and that's, that's cases you've worked on and yeah. solved. The majority of them are solved. Sure. Yeah, okay. yeah. So the ones that stand out for me, um, you know, obviously the Corey one was is one that stands out for me because I was. In char- they kind of said, hey, you can be in charge of the task team, for better or worse. Sure. I think they were shifting the blame onto me if it didn't get solved. It's my <laughs> okay. fault. Um, you know, the Norwood serial murderer, who I, he was part of my research, and I interviewed him over many, many year period, was fascinating because he was a policeman mm. committing around the area of his barracks. And if we look at it now versus the knowledge they had about serials then, it's like it was so obvious okay. that this guy, <laughs> where he was from, where he was operating, just looking at geographical pattern and mm. behaviors. Um, the Morimori serial murder, which you know very few people have ever heard about, which was um, the, the old Nailstrom who was killing children, raping and killing children, and a few adult women, was fascinating because of his victimology spectrum. Mm. So you know, those are the ones that, for me, and I mean the Morimori case and the Quarry case, we were investigating at the same time. They were ongoing. We were bouncing back and forth between the, the two towns, uh, looking at those cases. 
you know, so those those stand out for me for those reasons, but they're cases that you might have never even heard of. And we would find some serial trials, there wouldn't even be a journalist in the in the room. What's then what is it like to meet a serial killer, to sit down with someone? I mean what I mean, if I remember the, when I started my first contact with serial murders, which was, as I say, when I was interviewing them as part of my master's research, mm. you know, I was busy qualifying during my master's, going to interview these guys. And of course, before you get there, you, you like everybody, you expect a monster. Mm. And you know, they're, they're, they're really kind of normal and in many cases quite boring. Yeah. You know, they're not the Hannibal Lecters with these evil genius minds mm. and incredible wit and intellect and sense of humor and... They're just kind of like people. You know, I always say they spend more time, majority of their time, not killing people. Yeah. So they have to be doing the things that we do on a daily basis. Yeah. They most, a lot of them have some form of a job, even if it's a peace job, maybe. Um, so they're kind of living relatively normal lives. And I don't even think that's a facade they're putting on. It's just that is who they are. They just yeah. unfortunately have this parallel urge every now and then it comes up to want to go out and kill someone. Yeah. And when you speak to them, they're not physically what you expect. You know, in your mind, you build up the impression of a, uh, even their posture being aggressive and they're like these skinny weedy guys they kind of like look like me in a way in that sense yeah. you know um some of them quite i mean i still get i got a birthday voicemail from one of them that, from the one of the guys who i used to interview for my research on sunday you know saying, right. hey happy birthday for this week it's your birthday you know every now and then a birthday card so a lot of them are kind of when you start to talk to them they're just like in that sense very normal yeah but there is this parallel side to them that when they're specifically when they're out of prison with these urges arise and they you know want to go out and kill people and rape and kill people so still to come we get a close and personal then with the quarry killer excited again at some of the detail there um you can tell your friends to catch us on brandlive.co.za or search profile africa on youtube and please subscribe to our page we're also available on itunes and you can also follow us on instagram twitter and facebook simply search for profile africa Richard Jabulani Nyauza is not a name that you may know, but if you lived in Midran, Gauteng, between 2002 and 2006, it's the name that you should have come to know. He was the quarry killer. Gerard, tell us, how did you come to learn about this case? Hmm. So originally, the first five murders that he committed was in 2002. Now, at that point, it was along what we now call the Krugersdorp Highway, the N14 between Pretoria and Krugersdorp. Um, kind of near, if people know the area, the R55, Santon, Pretoria, West, Orframp. Um, but at the time, we were busy with what we actually called the Highwayman Murder Series. We're along okay. that same highway, but where the N14 continues towards Polokone as the N1. Um, a few off-ramps further down, maybe 10 kilometers, 15 kilometers down the road, we were busy with a bunch of murders, bodies that were found around that area. Okay. So initially we thought this could be the same person, it's along the same highway, although there's a 10, 15 kilometer gap between them, they were all adult females, seemed to be raped and murdered. But it turns out we arrested the, the um, Elias Chauke, the highwayman, for murders that occurred um, uh, during that year, but he was in prison for the time of these other five bodies that occurred between January and September 2002. So we knew he couldn't be the guy who committed those other murders. Mm. So those remaining five cases in 2002 were investigated. It was all adult black females found in a state partial or complete state of nakedness. Um, and basically they investigated and no leads and it was closed off. Mm. Um, and the last one was of September 2002. Okay. So a few years go by, 2006. We get contacted by a detective from the Vitterbridge Police Station, Inspector Beloy, and he says, I've had two bodies in the past month or so in this particular area, which was about 2.8 kilometers away from where the other bodies had been found okay. in 2002. 
as the crow flies around a, an open pit quarry. Um, and he said, look, I, and he didn't know about the other bodies because he wasn't working in the area at the time. So we said, you know, Beloy, we had a whole bunch of bodies in 2002, not far from there, also adult females naked and murdered. We think this, we need to look at those as possibly this guy's work also. And for some reason, he's been gone quiet for the past few years. Mm. So we then started to be called out to, we said, call us out to any subsequent scenes. We then started the processes of getting task team formed, which took two months to get authorization to, to get a task team put together. Mm. Um, and eventually that in about May, um, so Beloy came to us, I think in, in February or March or well, January or February, we started going to the scenes by I think March, April, end of March or May, we finally got authorization for six of us to form okay. a task team. So, you know, people watch TV, you think it's going to be 20, 30, 40 people. Yeah. There were six of us okay. and your colleagues overseas, you know, if I speak to British policemen, they say, you know, we have one murder and we have 20 to 40 people working on it. Mm. You're telling me you had at that point six or seven murders and they had six of you? And then you're really talking about the crime scene photographer who's going to come and document it and collect evidence. He does both normally, or she. Um, sometimes you'd get the forensic pathologist to come out to the scene. In, in a lot of murders in South Africa, that doesn't happen. You know, okay. they only see the body when it gets to the mortuary. Okay. You'd have had usually the you know a couple of uniformed policemen who would be called out initially. You know, someone would say, "I found a body." The first people to respond would be the uniformed guys, who okay. would then cordon off the area and then wait for the detectives. And then, of course, the detective Beloy was called out, and then my unit responded. So, you know, you're talking anything from 10 to 15 people who would be there present. Um, the more people there, the, you know, that's not great because they can start to tamper with the scene mm. or in, unintentionally yeah. walk across an exhibit that's maybe 20 meters away from the body. Yeah. And then, basically, once it's been documented, you then, in that case, you took the body out of the water. Um, you won't really do any investigation at the, at the scene on the body because, of course, you want to get that body in its undamaged state you don't want to make you want to make sure you don't damage the body any further by your process of taking it and putting it onto the mortuary into the mortuary vehicle mm -hmm. and then the next day that body would be autopsied and then we would usually go to the autopsy and be present and ask questions to the doctor and give the doctor information about what we saw at the scene which could help them with their with their autopsy okay the, the, does the the fact that you don't have 40 40 cops on the scene like you would in the uk does that hamper your ability to to find the you know the minute detail around a crime scene it'll depend on the scene like here you have a body that was found in, in the water so it was probably yeah. and at that point it was like a little a mini dam wall so the body it stopped there so most likely the body had been pushed into the water a bit further up okay um can you find that original spot that could be anything from a kilometer long distance you know yeah. do we have the resources to walk the whole area Etc. So you kind of have to weigh up each crime scene, whether we think, listen, we want to get 100 people in here okay. and do a fingertip search or okay. get specialist forensic, you know, we've got biological fluid dogs. So, you know, you have dogs that sniff out money and drugs. Okay. We have ones that sniff out human blood and human semen. Oh, really? okay. And we'll react even if it's micro traces of human blood okay. and human semen, they will pick it up. You know, is it, do we, is it going to be worthwhile? Is it too big an area for the dog to search, etc.? So you kind of have to judge each scene okay. by the circumstances of what you think you're going to get out of it forensically. Okay. Um, so yeah, so we, we, we could call in specialists and very often what we would do in, in the quarry cases is we'd call out the body recovery dogs to search the whole area because we know serials come back to the same area very often and the dogs did find another body. So ultimately, we had the, the five from 2002, yes. January to September. Yeah. We never identified yeah. any of the 2002 victims ever. 2006, we ended up with another 11. Okay. From January also to September, because I think we're a core correct to be caught in about September. Okay. So now, we, of course, we get the t we we start to GPS all the crime scenes. We start mm -hmm. to try and identify the victims. And in this case, I think we had 
out of the 16, I think only eight were ever identified. So we started okay. to try and identify the, the newer victims. Uh, we oh, were successful as further bodies occurred. We were able to identify some of them. We were able to figure out where they were going at the time, who they were supposed to be meeting, if they had a cell phone that would invariably help us try and track mm. the suspect. Because, I mean, South African suspects tend to take the victim's cell phone themselves because they are often from low economic groups themselves, the sure. suspects. So your main priority might be to rape and murder. But, hey, if there's a wallet there and you're hungry, sure. you're going to take that. Although yeah. it's not a financially motivated crime. That's the secondary benefits for the suspect. Yes. Um, and that and, and the cell phones that were, were instrumental in helping us also get closer towards the suspect as the investigation went through. Um, and we probably would have caught him with the cell phone if we hadn't had a breakthrough later on towards the end of, of the series. Okay. Which relates back to the DNA. Okay. And also, we also then started to reconstruct the faces of some of the victims who were decomposed. So we had big posters made that we okay. put up. The thing is, where do we put it up? Which township? Because these victims could have come from 100 kilometers away. Yeah. So we did do big reconstructions of forensic artists at SAP's Forensic Science Laboratory, recreated these pictures' faces as best as we could. We put them up in various areas. It didn't help us identify uh, any of those victims that we had posters made. When do you make a decision to engage the media? And these types of it's a, it's a tricky one because on the one hand, if the suspect realizes that the police are focusing on the area, they can go quiet, yeah. relocate to a different area, and then we might have 10 bodies before we realize we have a serial, that guy shifted to a different area. Mm. And that's not to say we want people to be killed in this particular area, but it's such a cash 22. So we normally say, look, we do have a responsibility to warn people in society that we have a suspect operating in this area. We think his modus operandi would be to offer you a job. Please don't go alone with anybody, um, no matter how convincing they seem. Don't don't go alone with someone to for a job offer, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Okay. So you do have to make that announcement. That, yeah. as I said, does pose certain restrictions or difficulties for the investigation. But you know, you you can't not let it be known. But the sad thing is, how do you become not? How do you not become a victim? Don't go anywhere with a stranger, yeah. which is kind of like, well, hey, that's pretty good general advice. Yeah. Um, because that's how these guys do you. They offer you a job. Yeah. And convince you to go with them. And that's how they get you to where they want to come. Yeah, let's talk about yeah. over your experience. There emerges a pattern, mm. which is is fairly regular in South Africa. Talk about that pattern yeah. of kind of and what percentage of killers mm. that you engage with of the hundred and ten odd cases that you worked on followed that pattern. Yeah, so I mean, from my own experience, but we also did some really great research with uh, an American university on our serials. But in a nutshell, most of our South African serial murders will approach a, 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 a female, adult female on the streets at a taxi rank, public place, and say, are oh, you looking for a job? And because we have such a high rate of unemployment, it's not that difficult mm. to get to let, for some lady to go, yes, I do need a job. Yeah. How much does it pay? 500 rand a day. Wow, yes, please. Yeah. And he'll either say, come with me now, or meet me here tomorrow, bring your ID book, yeah. or your CV. And he will walk, jump in a taxi, ride, train, and eventually say, we need to take a shortcut through this felt, like many people do, yeah. and to a pre-identified area which he feels comfortable enough operating in. Yeah. And that comes back to the geography of serial crime, which we can talk about at another date, mm. and then he will rape and murder them. Yeah. So that is kind of the stock standard way in which our suspects are getting hold of their victims because okay. of our high unemployment. They're basically using our economic circumstances and desperation mm. to people yeah. as an effective means of luring. Again, Young, preying on their vulnerability. Absolutely. And for younger kids, they'll just usually walk up to them and say, I need directions to this place. Mm. And in many cult in the black culture, it's rude for a child to just point an adult in a direction and say it's over there. Yes. They'll say, Hey, I'm an adult, you must take me there. Yeah. Okay, yes, uncle. And then yeah. they get lured that way. So here's a good takeout from episode one is 
you know, something we're taught all we grow up, don't trust talk strangers. to strangers, yeah. don't yeah. trust strangers. Yeah. Um, this you know, is it's not some anything, great advice stuff to avoid. you should be doing daily, not just when you think there's a serial act. Yeah, Sadly, of course, absolutely. You know. um, how do you then cut to solving okay. this crime? Let's let's get to the cut to the chase. How so, do you catch him? There were a few ways. As I said, as we started to identify some victims, we knew what their patterns were, where they were going to. One victim said she was in Pretoria, approached by this guy. She said she didn't need a job. So he said, well, maybe you have a family member that needs a job. Here's my name. Here's my phone number. Okay. So when we identified, and that wasn't the victim, she then gave it to her sister. So sadly, her sister became the victim and came 140 Ks from Kwamishlanga in the north to Pretoria, luckily with her boyfriend, to meet this particular guy. Okay. So once we were able to identify that, we could get the guy's phone number, and he wrote the name Jabu, okay. which turned out to be Richard Jabulani Nyahuza. Ah. So that was one angle. Then, as I said, some of the cell phones of the victims were gone, and we were tracing those cell phones in terms of where they were moving around. So that okay, was another so he angle. was actively using, using the victim's victim cell phones. Exactly. Okay. So that was sort of two angles that were bringing us close to this guy. And we probably, if we hadn't had the break, the other breakthrough we'll get to the moment, we probably would have caught him via that method within a few days. Mm. But what happened was, we one day get a phone call from the forensic laboratory saying, we've had a DNA match. Remember those 2002 buddies that you had, those five? Well, the very last victim from, in September, the DNA from that victim, semen, matches a guy who was picked up for an attempted rape okay. of a little girl. In September 2002. So this is where the system starts working. Yes. So what happens yeah. was Richard Jabulanian user had attempted to rape his girlfriend of the time's daughter. He okay. wasn't a successful rape. It was an attempted rape. Okay. He was arrested. He was charged. He was found guilty in the magistrate's court. Um, they then, because it was an attempted child rape, the magistrate's court in those days couldn't give a life sentence. So they referred to the high court. High court reviews the decision of conviction first before they decide whether they're going to give a sentence. And they felt, no, there's not enough evidence to, conv to convict him. Okay. But he spent four years in trial, awaiting trial, on his appeal, etc. That was the gap of five years, four-year okay. gap we had. But what happens is the, uh, the high court then says, no, sorry, I don't actually think there's enough evidence to convict this guy. And they release him in November 2005. Okay. But his DNA had been taken almost by fluke because it was an attempted rape. They normally wouldn't have taken his DNA because they would have said, well, what are we comparing it to? Because the little mm -hmm. girl wasn't successfully raped. Sure. So a mistake in that sense led to his DNA being taken, loaded onto the DNA database. And finally, we get this phone call, I think early September. Listen, we've got a match. This guy, Richard Jabulani, news it. Now we know, oh, hang on. Well, he's linked now to the two th one of the 2002 cases. Okay. Jabu was a name we got. This guy is Richard Jabulani. So yeah. he's probably the guy now. Yeah. We then get hold of the old case docket. We get hold of the old detective. We say, listen, take us to where this guy was. We go get taken to the lady, the, the, the mother of the daughter, his ex-girlfriend. And she said, look, he obviously doesn't stay with me anymore because of what happened. Yeah. But I know where he is staying because he's back in the area. Okay. So that night we hold a stakeout in the area over his house that she pointed out to us. And we arrest him as him and his brother arrive at his house. Okay. And, and it all adds story. up. I mean, the DNA adds yeah. up. His geographical location adds then up. Then the DNA is now the matching. The history of yeah. sexually motivated crime adds up. Yeah. You know, the DNA, We have, ultimately we had about eight DNA links in the 16 okay. cases to the old cases and the 2006 cases. He did uh, pointing out, which is when he takes an independent officer who's not familiar with the case, and he shows him various locations of where bodies were mm -hmm. left. That's fantastic evidence in court because only he would know that. Yeah. And we had 
ultimately also to use modus operandi evidence to get him convicted on the other eight cases where there was okay. no physical. There wasn't a cell phone linkage. There wasn't DNA. Then he didn't confess or point it out. And that's why I testified that the modus operandi was the same and unique enough for me, in my opinion, to say that whoever it is, I can't say it's Richard, whoever it is, is the same guy. Yeah. And the court actually accepted that evidence and he was convicted on all 16 murders and got 16 life sentences and a couple hundred more years. Tell us about taking him into custody briefly and then just tell us about the man a yeah. little Again, an unassuming person, mm. skinny guy. His current girlfriend said, you know, no problems with him. He had a nice little, neat little RDP house that was given to him while he was actually awaiting trial or in prison. Um, meek and mild kind of guy. Uh, within an hour or two of him being interviewed, he was admitting to what he had done. Okay. And then, we, as I said, we arranged the pointing outs with an independent objective officer the next day. Okay. Um, and he basically said, you know, woman treated him badly. Um, I think he said woman had given him HIV and, and he was getting revenge on woman. Yeah. And the problem is lots T of people. Pretty typical that. Yeah. But the thing is, I mean, there's lots of people in society who probably have, I mean, all of us guys can probably say, well, you know, girlfriend A, B, and C treated me very badly and lied to me. Well, cheap, sure. But we don't go out and kill people. No, absolutely. People. Absolutely. So that in itself is his explanation. Yeah. Whether that's really the reason yeah. that caused him as opposed to every other guy that's happened to, yeah. um, to do it. We'll never really know. We, we are really going know. to get into that detail in future episodes as mm -hmm. well about really digging deep down into the psychology of these guys and what it is that motivates them. Um, just taking him into custody. Tell yeah. us about how that went down. Um, so basically we had everybody waiting in the area at one or two cops observing, one cop observing the house for a couple of hours at the Shabin opposite where he was busy fitting into the patrons. And as he saw the two people arrive, the whole team came in and grabbed the guys okay so obviously he separated them the two of them because we weren't sure were both involved which okay. one of the two are involved was it him his brother or both okay. um we excluded the brother very quickly and then of course we had the forensics team combing that house they sure. were going to the dustbin outside they found sim cards belonging to some of the victims sure. they found one or two of the phones inside the house sure um so the evidential materials started together um and you know, a lot of your work starts once you've caught the guy it's yeah. not the end of it Absolutely. but unfortunately the task team was shut down within a few days primarily because Jackie Salebi at the time shut down all specialized units in 2006. Okay. We know the history of Jackie Salebi mm. and all task teams. Mm. So all of a sudden they took away Captain Fabricius back to the murder and robbery or mm. serious and violent, serious and violent crime unit. Um, Maduna had to go back to either station. Um, obviously the three of us from my unit could continue, but sure. you know, our resources were taken away and they kind of also, they added, well, you're caught in now. So what's the problem? <laughs> You know, you have to prepare yeah. that whole case for court, which is a lot of work. You have to make sure the witnesses come for consultations, etc. So a lot yeah. of your work starts after the arrest, which a lot of up and our commanders don't really get. That. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting, I think, when we get into really discussing that kind of, you know, how the two systems work together, the teams on the ground and then the management, mm. the management structure there at SAPS and how the, the little political, political yeah. issues there affect, you know, affect and we literally had politicians on interfering the in some degree. With this, that's a story, as I said, from that time. What, what's your takeout from the quarry killer? I mean, what's your number one takeout from this particular case? You know, what I always like to say to people, it shows you that you don't have to have hundreds of people. It shows you that centralizing your dockets under a small team of people who know what they're doing, because uh, by then most of us, except Beloy and Maduna, had worked on countless serial cases. Captain Fabricius had worked on many of the Pretoria cases. Elmery, myself, and Yanni had worked on countless serial murders, and we applied what we knew worked but from other cases. We avoided the mistakes we made. That if you have a dedicated task team of people whose job it is to deal with those cases related to the serial, who have been trained, you will have success. Very rarely will that not lead to the arrest of a suspect and a conviction. Okay. And we've never lost a serial trial that's gone to court. Really? Yeah. 
You might not get a conviction on every single murder out of the, say, 10 sure. that you charge, but we've never had a guy walk away yeah. from a serial trial without at least being convicted of two or more murders. Okay. Um, I think the one interesting thing that I want to mention to listeners as well is that because a, a crime that has been solved, I understand that the, the materials related to those cases then become public record. Mm. We will be posting over the course of the series images, crime scene images, mm. etc., that listeners can engage with and, and, and really get a visual sense mm. of what it is we're talking about, which I think is going to be um, a really nice addition. So as we get deeper into the podcast, we'll start adding these layers so that people can really get a, an understanding and an insight into what you've been confronted with over your career and, and kind of how, how the whole process works of, of, of profiling and, and dealing with these kinds of crimes. So that's something to look out for. And go to our Instagram page. We're going to put up a couple of pictures related to um, to the quarry killer. Um, Gerard, I think this has been a, a, a very engaging first episode. Thank you so much. I think we've got so much to talk about over, over the weeks to come. Serial murder, Mutine human murder. trafficking, multi murders. Probably look at maybe some family murders, which we had a few of recent big profile, mm. high profile ones in South Africa. Um, I think what we call womb raiders. Um, raiders. Yeah, okay. uh, where people essentially, f in a nutshell, the, the suspect fakes a pregnancy and around the time they're supposed to give birth, they go and kill a pregnant woman and take the child as their own. Wow. Um, cesarean kidnapping is sort of the more technical term. Wow. Uh, we might even touch maybe on some stalking cases. Um, so uh, the majority is serial in nature. Um, and here and there, like I said, the family murders might be more of a once-off thing, but serial in the sense that they're happening, you know, with reasonable regularity in, in, mm. in our country. Thank you so much for listening to episode one. Um, this is Profiler Africa. Uh, tell your friends to catch us on brandlive.co.za or search Profiler Africa on YouTube. And please subscribe to our page. We're also available on iTunes. And you can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Simply search for Profiler Africa. Thanks for listening and pleasant dreams. Mm -hmm.